Today's episode is brought to you by Highlight. Buying, selling, and minting NFTs should be as easy as buying something on Amazon Prime. And that's exactly why Highlight was started. You have access to no-code tools and infrastructure to help creators and artists design and mint NFTs. You can also build custom-branded membership communities and connect with your most loyal fans. To learn more about Highlight can help your business level up, go to highlight.xyz. That's highlight.xyz. If you're a startup and you're looking for celebrity investors, then I know that the market has cooled down a bit, but still, you know, you're in a fairly mature startup and you're trying to get your name out there a little more by getting, you know, strategic investors, celebrities, et cetera. The kind of reach that he has, especially if you're trying to get into Spanish language market, just it's untoppable. And, you know, I just think there's a tremendous opportunity there and in a lot of other places for him too. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. On today's episode, we switch things up a little bit. This is normally an interview style podcast, but I did a recent survey and many of you say, you wanted to hear more from me. You wanted to hear my insights, my perspective on this space and where things are heading. So it was a great time to invite back Zach O'Malley Greenberg. You may know him from his work at Forbes where he started a lot of the reporting on how much money hip hop artists were making and the potential for what they could do in the business world. So we covered a bunch of topics in this episode. First, we talked about the iPod. Apple recently announced that they are discontinuing the influential device after almost 21 years in its production. So Zach and I talk about the device's importance and influence. Then we talked about Spotify. The stock is trading at an all-time low. So we talk about what does that mean for streaming? What does that mean for music? And more broadly, how does that compare to video and other types of streaming? Then we talked about the current king of streaming and the current king of Spotify, Bad Bunny. He's the biggest artist in the world. So we talk about the impact and importance of what that means for a Latin artist, a Latin artist who has yet to do a song in English and how cool that is. And then we close things out where we talked about Robinson Cano, who is a baseball player and how his career took a bit of a different turn after he signed with Jay-Z's Rock Nation Sports Agency. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, send a note and let us know because that's the type of stuff that encourages the great content. I hope you enjoy it. Here's our conversation. All right, we got Zach O'Malley Greenberg with us today and we are gonna cover a bunch of topics. And the first one that's near and dear to both of us is we got to pour some out for the iPod. After almost 21 years, the device that changed the game, Apple announced it's discontinuing it. And it's a great time to talk about its legacy, its impact. So first, let's start here, because I know that you likely owned a bunch of these. I did too. How many iPods did you own and which version was the first one you got? Oh, man. You know, I think I had originally one of the, the clunky ones that didn't have sort of like the touch wheel, you know, like with the, the kind of mono, you know, the, was it like the black and white kind of uh, janky one. But the one that really sticks in my mind was right around the time that Bono was doing all those commercials. And I remember my godfather was like, I want to get you a, a nice present for your birthday. He's like, I want to get you like, like a personal DVD player. And I was like, 
That's very sweet of you, and I really appreciate that. But could I have an iPod instead? And he was like, what's this iPod? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, I think that one, that must have been like, I don't know, maybe around 2005. That was when they started getting really sexy looking. And um, and you had the touch wheel, and you had, you know, kind of like the, the sleek black look on it instead of like, you know, sort of like the white, which which would get kind of, you know, it would get kind of grimy, at least mine did, but this was sleek. I think the back was silver. I mean, it was really a work of art. And, and that was when I started thinking it's only a matter of time before they just make one of these that's a phone, you know? And I'm sure, you know, having talked to people at Apple over the years, by the time they put out that iPod in, in the mid-aughts, they already had designs on the iPhone. But there would have been no, you know, no iPhone if there weren't an iPod. And, you know, in many ways, I think the iPod saved the music industry, right? I mean, when they created that ecosystem, it just became easier to get your music you know, through the legal means than by downloading them, you know, downloading those MP3s uh, illegally and say what you will about, you know, the death of the album and the issues of like breaking up albums and selling them single by single. But you know, I think that really provided the bridge that the music industry needed to get to the streaming era. So yeah, four went out indeed. Yeah, the device. How about you, Dan? What was your first? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the first one for me, let's see. I want to say it was 2004. I bought the iPod mini because I didn't have a Mac at home. So I waited until they were a compatible uh-huh. on PC. And I had a, I think I was working either at Dairy Queen or I was working at our local Parks and Rec at the time. And one of the first paychecks I had, I was like, no, let me go take this, buy an iPod mini. So I had that. But listen, after two months of having that, and I was one of the first people in the, school to have one at the time. I left it in my pocket and put it in the washing machine like a typical teenager would and that thing gets ruined, right? So then I was like, okay, fine. Let me get another one. This time I was making CDs at the time. I was burning them and selling them in school. So I said, okay, I need a bigger operation here. Let me get the full-on classic one. Got that. Within two months of getting that, so this is around the time of high school graduation, I put the bag into this bleacher area by the school where we had the graduation. I go back after graduation. Someone takes that bag. Someone in the class wants to see me put it there. And then that one's gone. So then by the time I'm entering college, I said, you know what? I just need to get another one. So I bought three iPods within a 18-month period. It's one of the most ridiculous things. And obviously for kid that was making $7 an hour at various jobs and being a camp counselor and working at Dairy Queen and other places. That's what I spent my money on. I bought it on iPods. So I had to go into freshman year of college, fresh in one of those things. But as I had that, that one I did have for a while though. I kept that one for a number of years. And I think I eventually got a shuffle later on for running and stuff like that. So I think, so I guess I had four devices total, but I agree with you. Take a step back, thinking about the device overall. I actually went back and watched Steve Jobs' keynote that he initially did. And he had done keynote presentations before for all the other products that he had throughout the years. But I feel like this one is the one that really turned the pop culture aspect of the Steve Jobs keynote with, he was no longer wearing the suits, right? He's wearing the black turtleneck tucked into the jeans, takes the iPod out of the pocket, has the 100 songs in your pocket quote. And I think from there, what you mentioned too about the bridge that this was for streaming, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, look at the way iTunes set up. iTunes was essentially legalized version of Napster, right? Instead of just downloading the songs for free, let's take a similar layout and make it look a lot cleaner than Napster did. And you can download the songs 
yourself. The thing that's interesting, though, if we just think about Apple's influence in this space over the years, this was the company that essentially paved the way for digital music technology listening, both from companies and the industry. And it did the same for podcasting as well. And for years, Jobs didn't want to get into music streaming. He thought that having a annual or having a monthly subscription for it wasn't the best idea. And obviously, we know that spot that, that podcasting as well, although it was something that Apple started. We're looking now with the way things are. Yes, they have presence in both podcasting and in music, but Apple isn't the industry leader in any of these spaces. So we could have a whole podcast episode about what's changed. But even though there's a lot that necessarily maybe hasn't taken off in the same ways, you can't knock the influence for what this product did and just its evolution over the years and what it led to. I was looking at some stats earlier. Its sales peaked in 2008-2009 range, which is still after the iPhone came out. So you had this whole runway of time where they just kept selling more and more and they just eventually figured it out and they had a whole system of these things and you're selling 20, 30 million of them a quarter. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the deeper you get into the Apple ecosystem, right? I mean, and I'm fully embedded. I'm stuck. There's no way out. But, you know, I remember with that, you know, the the U2 era iPod, you could still, you know, when you plugged it into your computer, you would still see that little iPod icon on your desktop. And you could open it up as though it were, you know, an external hard drive and you could, you know, move files in and out. And it didn't really, there were no questions asked as to where the the files were obtained, you know, and they would show up in your music library and you could put all kinds of different files on there. And it was great. And then, you know, with each successive version, so they eventually eliminated that. And, you know, now, of course, if you have iTunes, you know, songs that you may have had in there from the, from the LimeWire and Kazaa era just suddenly disappear and, you know, you can't really get them back unless you have them backed up somewhere on a you know physical hard drive. So, you know, I think that there was also a level of control that Apple got. But, you know, but to have you be part of that ecosystem, I think that's the most valuable thing for them. Right. I mean, if you look at Apple versus Spotify, you know, like you were talking, sure, Apple's not the leader in the music, you know, streaming business. Apple Music is, I guess, a distant second, but they, you know, they don't need to win that because the hardware turns out, or at least in the case of the iPod and now the, you know, more recently the, the iPhone, the, the hardware turns out to be more valuable than the software, you know, looking at Spotify. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, intellectual property, right? If, if, the, if you have to pay for the intellectual property or you're, you know, or a whole huge chunk of that is coming out of your, you know, out of your profits um, or, or your, out of your revenue before you get to profit, you know, it, it's uh, it's a lot harder to make a ton of money than it is for a company like Apple, where the iPod or the iPhone, you know, that was their intellectual property and, and they could sell it for, you know, whatever they wanted to. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes me even think about AirPods now. And you know, I always see those infographics of AirPod revenue and comparing that to all these other tech companies and how if you just look at this one product that Apple has and how it does better than so many of the household companies that we have. But for you, though, was the iPod the first product that pushed you onto Apple or were you in a household that it had iMacs and things like that? Yeah, no, I was first computer was an Apple. I think I only ever owned one or two computers that were not Apple's. And that was when my you know gaming buddies in high school convinced me to get something else but yeah no it's been you know from back in the day for me so okay cool yeah i'm stuck 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because I do think for a lot of people, this product ended up being the the game changer. And I know it took mm-hmm. a few generations for them to eventually put it and make it Windows compatible. And it's funny, I was looking back, there was a few conversations where Tony uh, Fidel, the guy who had actually invented it, essentially, that worked with Apple on it, they had had a whole bunch of conversations about what ends up leading to what. And I think for a while, Jobs was under the impression that if you keep the iPod as a Apple iOS exclusive device, then it will encourage more people to buy future iMac or Apple products. But what actually ended up happening, they pushed for the opposite and they saw the opposite where make the device compatible, people then see and they get introduced to the Apple world. And then that makes them want to then buy more iMacs and buy more MacBooks and buy things like that. So it was the opposite push pull of what they thought happens. And it's one of those things where instead of restricting access to make people think that they want the thing you're restricting, how do you give people a taste and then have them naturally want to get it on their on their own? Absolutely. I mean, I think it almost mirrors being an artist, right? I mean, you don't want to withhold your art, your music from streaming services so that people will go out and buy the vinyl or, or you know, back in those days, download the MP3. You want people to be out there and, you know, getting familiar with your work. And you're not going to cannibalize yourself if people really like you. I mean, just look at Taylor Swift, you know, her fans go out and buy her vinyl, you know, by the hundred thousand and they can certainly have access to it whenever they want on the streaming services. Yeah. Speaking of vinyls, it stuck out to me that there were a bunch of iPod touches that sold out immediately. So essentially the line is completely gone now. And even a few on eBay that were going for crazy prices after this announcement came out. And it made me think, is the iPod going to be the way that vinyls are looked at now? Is there going to be this resurgence for this retro thing where people look back and let's say that as millennials or Gen Z have kids and they want to see, okay, what was this generation listening to when they were teenagers? And they go back and be like, oh, let's check out Zach's iPod. Let's check out Dan's iPod or whatever else. Do you think that there is a resurgence in that type of way, the same way we're seeing it with vinyl? You know, I could see maybe I think the main issue would be uh, compatibility, right? In the way that, you know, not even Apple to PC, but you know, old Apple stuff isn't even necessarily compatible with compatible with new Apple stuff. So if I wanted to plug in my old iPod, if I could dig it up wherever it was, I mean, I don't think I even have a freaking USB port on my computer. No, I don't. I mean, you need uh, like five you dongles. Know? You need like a FireWire, <laughs> yeah, a USB I, you know? to USB to C. Exactly. And so, it, and even then, it's like what songs will it remove will my computer remove from my ipod or you know vice versa so i mean i almost wonder if there's the really old ones where you go and you can see like you can open it up like that u2 era ipod and actually just manually move the mp3 tracks around if those still work somehow you know that might be almost a way of safeguarding one's music files from being kind of like yanked up into the ether you know i think whereas vinyl Despite being somewhat cumbersome, it is ultimately plug and play. You plug it into a standard outlet, you put the thing on, it's very mechanical. So yeah, I do think that might be the only drawback. But yeah, I could totally see the next hipster thing being <laughs> dongles and all, finding a way to use those iPods. So you know, just I guess cassette tapes are making a comeback too. So 
you know, just like vinyl, even CDs are, were up, you know, over the past year. So what's old is new again. I know, right? You never know. If someone had told me when the iPod first came out that vinyls would have made a comeback, I never would have thought that. But you mentioned plug and play and you mentioned you two earlier. We have to talk about the greatest hack of all time with whatever you plug this damn device into any USB thing, U2's album automatically starts playing how they were yeah. able to get that to happen. And I know it wasn't 100% intended, but it also kind of was. So however they were able to do that, eventually I do think it got on the nerves of many people. And we saw from whether it was Apple or even Spotify later on, people feeling like these services are pushing certain artists on them. I do think that that is one of the understated hacks that we've seen in both of U2's major deals with Apple speak to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just remember, you know, right, they gave away that album and you woke up one morning and it was on your, you know, iTunes and all these people were freaking out, like, get this off my computer. I can't get it off my computer. I don't want this taking up hard drive space. Like, first of all, how much hard drive space does it take up? And like, you have a, a Mac anyway, probably. And it's, you know, it's fine. Is Bono really that offensive to you? Like you two? I mean, I don't know. I think it's sort of, you know, I mean, I don't want to say like easy listening, but it's not like offensive. Like who's offended by you two? I was kind of always surprised by that. And Bono had this kind of poignant quote. And he said, he was like, you know, I'm just an Irishman trying to give you some beautiful music you know, for free. <laughs> if you don't want it, I'm sorry, you know, like kind of thing. And uh, I mean, I can't really feel bad for Bono, but and I, you know, he was a good sport about it. But it's kind of funny the the way people's minds work. You know, it's like during the the Napster era, it's like, oh, I got to go get all my music for free. You know, I will seek it out to illegally download music, right? And it'll take me, you know, an hour to download a song. And if somebody calls my mom on the landline, you know, it'll get interrupted halfway through, right? And then, you know, here comes U2 giving everybody a free album and they don't even have to do anything. And all these people are kind of grousing about it. So I thought that was sort of, you know, above all, a really interesting commentary on like the human psyche and, you know, wanting what you can't have and not wanting what you do. So, <laughs> yeah, pour one out for that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, from my perspective, I was never upset about the album actually being there. If anything, it was more so the minor inconvenience of can I plug this device into the aux or the USB port for one second without anything automatically playing, right? Like I also had this era yeah. where it was back from doing anything that I purchased on iTunes and Lady Gaga's Bad Romance would always play. So like once the YouTube thing stopped, like that song always played and you want to hear about friends <laughs> making fun of me and dragging me for that all day long. So <laughs> that was always a, a hilarious one. But no, this was good. Let's pour one out for the iPod, one of the most influential products we've seen. And as we both know, I think we talk about how so much innovation starts in music and this device is one of the best examples of that. So salute to it. Had a Absolutely. had a great run. Oh, sure. And on that note, I actually think it's probably better for us to stay on the music topic and the streaming topic and talk a bit about Spotify because this company less than a year ago, well, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, they had, were signing so many of the big exclusive deals. The Rogan deal was still fairly fresh and the stock was at an all-time high. And now the stock is at an all-time low. As we're recording this, it's trading under $100. Its market cap is under $20 billion. Daniel Eck just purchased $50 million himself to show confidence that he has in the company's stock moving forward. But 
Where do you see all of this happening? I think there's a lot that's happening in the market right now that could be aligned with this, but there's a lot that could be separate from this that could be a bit more specific to where Spotify currently is. So what's your take on the current state of Spotify? Yeah, I mean, I I think, like you say, there are these kind of macro trends in the market and the world that are, are kind of dragging down a lot of stuff. I think with Spotify, though, what's going on is that people are freaking out about streaming in particular after that sort of big surprise bad news from Netflix a little while ago, where they essentially admitted that the cap on, you know, paid streaming for them was 220 million people and that that they were going to open up their free, you know, free or lower ad supported tier. I forget if it was a free tier with ads, or I think it was just a lower price tier with ads. So yeah, you know, the idea that, well, you know, it's all streaming and Spotify had been trying to emulate Netflix by paying all this money for content and, you know, the Joe Rogans of the world and podcasting and stuff. So I get it on one hand, but, you know, there's a lot of fear right now in the public markets and there's a lot of sort of, you know, constellating of things, right? And yes, they're both streaming companies, but to me, you know, I take a step back and I look at it and I see two totally different companies. I mean, obviously one is primarily, you know, video, one's audio, but, you know, the reason that Spotify works and the reason that Spotify became the market leader in audio streaming is it is essentially an unlimited buffet. Netflix was never an unlimited buffet. And you know this if you are somebody who has ever gone on Netflix to find a particular movie or something. Like, I remember many years ago when I first got Netflix, I was like, oh, you know, I want to watch whatever it was, the latest James Bond movie. I'll go on here. It's like nine out of a month. I'll have unlimited everything, right? No, they only have, you know, whatever movie. They have all these Adam Sandler movies and they have, you know, just like a random smattering of movies. And of course, they have all these shows. But you get Netflix because you want to watch certain shows, you know, or because you are somebody who's just like, I I want to just put something on and I I trust that they will have, you know, I don't want to think about it. Like I I trust that they will have good stuff and I'll put on one of their shows and, you know, it's a lot cheaper than cable. So, you know, that to me was always a very different model. It is not an unlimited buffet of movies and television, you know, unlike terrestrial cable, where in theory, you know, you get your cable package and, you can watch the news or you can watch sports or you could, there's some crappy movies on, you know, there's like more of a promise of unlimited opportunity. So I think that like there was never a video streaming service that had the unlimited buffet kind of nature of a Spotify. So, you know, I think that's what ultimately caps Netflix at around that 220 million number. If there were some way that Netflix could totally replace your cable and I know Hulu has live TV options, or if Netflix really did have, you know, a complete movie library that you could complete a TV library, you get anything you want. I think that there would be a lot more room to grow, but it's such an ordeal to get all the rights necessary to do that. I don't know how that would ever happen. And you certainly couldn't bankroll like every single thing in the future that would be needed to have that kind of thing going on in perpetuity. So yeah, I guess I just, I think that Netflix is dealing with this issue of like sort of the the unbundling and rebundling and what people are treating Netflix as is sort of like a bundle, right? You want to maybe some other bundles. You probably don't just have Netflix. You have Netflix and Hulu, or maybe you even have terrestrial cable and Netflix or something like that. Whereas with Spotify, you have all of your music. I mean, what do you not get on Spotify? Or if it's Apple Music, what do you not get on Apple Music? So I think it's a little bit of, you know, the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater. And I just think that the fundamental thesis is a little bit different when it comes to Spotify than it is with Netflix. So that's my two cents. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Let's talk more about today's sponsor, Highlight. 
It's the easiest and most effective way to onboard and establish artists' fan base to Web3. They make it easy for you to build, mint, and launch token-gated communities with no crypto experience required. Highlight is a community-building platform, not a marketing platform. You can allow your most engaged fans to participate in your community's growth by buying membership in NFTs that they own, let members enjoy access to a private community, gated content, and exclusive benefits, and you can help creators earn a revenue split every time membership or benefits are bought and sold. Highlight is backed by the world's leading crypto technologists, music management companies, and other prominent players. Investors include Han Ventures, Kevin Durant's 35 Ventures, and more. Are you an artist, manager, or exec, and are you interested in finding out how to sign up for a free account? Learn more by going to highlight.xyz. That's highlight.xyz. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that echoes what Daniel Ek had said himself, right? He said, even though Spotify and Netflix are both subscription-based revenue companies that serve media on a regular basis to its content, that is where a lot of the similarities do stop. And even though there are points where I feel like Spotify and other streaming serv- music streaming services that tried to replicate what Netflix did, it was never going to be that way. And I think what makes the music streaming area a bit more unique is that because 80%, I'll probably even say 90% of the content that each of these services offer is largely the same, you end up inevitably having a price war at some point once you've reached a certain level of distribution and once you've reached a certain percentage of audience that you're reaching. We're starting to see that happen now. You're starting to see that saturation. And I was recently talking to Will Page, the economist that studies the space. And his analogy was that for a long time, this was a herbivore market. People were capturing the opportunity that's there. We're shifting to a carnivore market. And in a lot of ways, that does end up benefiting the companies that are the most willing to cut costs or the most willing to pivot. And if we're bringing things back full circle a bit to what we said about Apple Music earlier, this is not a product that they are necessarily trying to run at a profit. It's very similar to the Amazon Prime mentality of when Jeff Bezos has said, the more Golden Globes that we win, the more sneakers that we're able to sell through Amazon. And I think the same could be said from Apple to some extent. They win Best Picture. Coda wins Best Picture. That's their product that helps them get more subscribers who then end up purchasing the wide number of different products they have under their Apple Plus bundle that they're able to offer there. I do think with Spotify, though, and this is why I do think they likely have more relative upside right now, I would say, than Netflix. It's for two reasons. One, Spotify has had relatively better growth in the most recent quarters, I'd say, and that's even accounting for both services seizing service in Russia. It's also looking at them just being able to already have the free tier and penetration and already having a pipeline to acquire more as well. And secondly, I think the podcasting model is ultimately what will help them. This was a model that I was initially skeptical about for years, just in terms of whether or not Spotify would be able to actually make it work and become the dominant player in audio. But the reason that I think they're probably going to be better off is because of the actual data that they can offer both advertisers and listen and, and podcasters as well. And this going back to opportunities that Apple didn't necessarily capture at the time, you think about the fact that most podcasting is essentially just an RSS feed. And 
a lot of people are sharing monthly podcast downloads and things like that. And if you look at some of the podcasts, especially some of the ones that were most popular in 2016, when podcasts were really starting to take off, a lot of those listeners may not necessarily be actively listening, but it could be background downloads. That's where Spotify wins because it can actually have that clear data to show who's listening to what. They acquire two companies, Chartable and Podkite, that are both analyzing and having the better data in this space. So the we're leading to a future where Spotify eventually is going to be able to, I think, dominate this space because they're able to make the better pitch to advertisers, come here, get a more direct way to reach your audience. And I think if the numbers do continue to grow, I think they will be better off. So of course, this is not investment advice, to be clear, for anyone. But I do think <laughs> that between the two of these, the Spotify is probably the company that's in the, the better position. And it's funny because this isn't always a a thought that I would have had. Of course, two completely different business models. Netflix is fixed. Spotify's is variable. But I do think that over time, relatively speaking, it still has plenty of hurdles to get through. But it feels like that's where the opportunity is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. And I mean, with that, another piece that people have brought up as well is content as well. What are your thoughts on Netflix's content? Because I know that's a piece where people have often said, well, if you're just going to make shows like Is This Cake and stuff like that, then why am I going to pay money for the service? And the fact that they haven't necessarily had as many true franchises or any repeatable types of things. And in my opinion, a lot of the things that have taken off from Spotify have, or not from Spotify, from Netflix. Sometimes it almost feels like it's like flashes and bottles that catch off a bit unexpectedly whether it's like a bird box or a squid game or make it a murderer, things like that. Like it doesn't have the same feeling of, okay, you know, this big HBO show is going to come and dominate and it does. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think Netflix has just done such a good job of going out and just acquiring tons and tons of content. Right. And, you know, given their model, they pay out a lot you know, been people have been talking over the past however many years, like, oh, Netflix spent X billion dollars on content. Like, how are they going to sustain it? But when you're acquiring that much stuff, it's like you have all these lotto tickets. And when something takes off, you know, you know, I think in most cases, you're not having to pay a lot of it back, you know, on the back end, like you would with, you know, obviously Spotify ends up paying back, you know, a huge percentage uh, of what comes in back to the, the labels and to the artists. So I think that the model that Netflix has, there's sort of like, a lot higher upside when something works. I mean, I guess with Spotify, they're trying to emulate that on the podcasting side, but you know, it would seem to me that when Netflix has, you know, a TV show that takes off just out of nowhere, you know, something like squid game, the amount of new subscribers they sign up are just, you know, so much more than, than you'd get with a hit podcast. So, I mean, you know, in a way, I think what I'm most curious to see is how much will Spotify continue to try to emulate Netflix now that Netflix is sort of in a you know questionable phase, and do they just kind of you know try to double down on the music aspect? Because the other piece of it that we haven't talked about is you know when you're going out and acquiring content and you are paying for it specifically, like to have it made and everything, you become you know an arbiter of culture and taste, but also of you know right and wrong of what is hate speech of what is you know all kinds of things, and that's like a huge pain in the ass to figure out, right? As we learned with the whole. Spotify, Joe Rogan, Neil Young situation. And, you know, I never thought that Neil Young being off of Spotify was going to ruin Spotify. And I don't really think very many people did. But, you know, it did go to show that there's a, an amount of energy that has to go into defending some decisions once, once you are 
acquiring content versus sure. I mean, if you have artists on your platform and, you know, they do something terrible, you, you may have to make a decision to try to pull them off. But, you know, I think generally as a society, we've moved away from pressuring people to sort of deplatform musicians for making, you know, offensive music or something like that, the music that some people find offensive. And even for, you know, some of the most controversial musicians, you know, it, it's super rare that their music gets pulled down. So I just think that there's a lot more editorial energy that goes into obviously Netflix, but, you know, Spotify emulating Netflix in the podcasting space, that becomes a whole new headache with like a lot of unknown unknowns. So I do wonder now that it's, you know, perhaps less of a, a growth area, will Spotify kind of continue to follow that path? Yeah, that's a great point. We had not touched on this piece of it. And I think that in a lot of ways, it does mean it's more work for something like a company like Spotify. Netflix can pretty easily, at least I would hope so, identify the movies that have these issues. And we've already seen some of them have disclaimers, but there's a bit of a removedness from it because of just how they go about their deals versus Spotify. You just see the blind spots where someone that literally goes and finds all of the clips of Joe Rogan saying the N-word, putting that together, and then that's what sparks the controversy. You would have hoped that the company themselves would have been looking at the content and that it makes you think, are people really responding to the issue itself? By people, I mean the company like Spotify. Are they really responding to the issue itself or are they responding to the public outcry over the issue? And then that could you know, be an ongoing conversation. But that's where I do think that there needs to be much more editorial oversight and understanding that if you are going to be it's one thing to say that you're an open platform that anyone can put music on or anyone can put upload their music to but when you're exclusively paying someone and licensing their content it changes the dynamic of the relationship and i know that they try to make the distinction Absolutely. yes we are licensing joe rogan's content as opposed to acquiring it but the example i always bring back to people it's like okay well let's explore that scenario then let's say that this was bill simmons who now works for spotify because you acquired his company and we found those clips of him saying those things would you then have treated this situation differently i don't know the answer to that situation but spotify is implying that they would but i don't know yeah it's a gray area and the more you get into the deeper you get into editorial the less profitable it is i say as a journalist so <laughs> definitely i think that you know some of these companies are learning that the hard way couldn't agree more and while we're on the note of spotify let's switch gears again and let's talk about the current king of spotify right now bad bunny it is been really cool and refreshing to see an artist outside of the U.S. dominate on a platform like this. I think that his success has really showed what's possible now in a way. I think that he's the greatest success story of the streaming era. I really do. I mean, when you think about what he was able to do, where he was six years ago, I had written about it in a recent newsletter about how six years ago he's bragging groceries at a local grocery store in Puerto Rico. And then now he's a superstar. He's on stage at the Super Bowl. He's going to have his own Marvel movie, tops every chart possible. It's like that Kurt Warner underdog story from him starting off yeah. as, a, as a grocery bag and then did his arena football. But imagine if Kurt Warner had the career of Peyton Manning and actually went on to you yeah. know dominate years and years. It's impressive. What do you think about Bad Bunny and what he's been able to do? Oh, I think it's incredible. I mean, and I think it also it shows the democratization that has been brought about by streaming. And what's that Jay-Z line? Men lie, women lie, numbers don't. And, you know, 
you can have your charts for whatever publication and you can have all this and that and their formulas and stuff like that. But, you know, it's all very convoluted and, you know, it's, it's usually one way or the other. It's engineered to sort of favor the, those who are already sort of big names. But when you have the numbers, it shows up on Spotify and regardless of where you are on, on whatever other chart, I mean, the fact is that more people are listening to your music than they're listening to anybody else's music. And it's, you know, objectively true. You can see it in Spotify and the numbers don't lie. And and so Bad Bunny, I think, you know, was able to come up from, you know, in this incredible underdog story, you know, to get there. And there's proof, right? I mean, there's proof in a way that there might not have been, you know, before the streaming era. So I think another thing about Bad Bunny, you know, certainly in my time at Forbes, we would look, we'd scour the the world to find and do our, our list of the top earning musicians. And I did that list this past year for Rolling Stone, but you know, it was just all old rockers selling their catalogs basically. And I think, you know, a function of that is that the pandemic has just greatly disrupted touring, which would kind of like traditionally be the thing that would get you up on one of these lists. And, you know, I think now that the pandemic is kind of easing up, and tours are really starting to happen again, you know, we're seeing Bad Bunny be able to sell out stadiums, you know, I mean, he is really on that level in terms of, you know, people putting their money where their mouth is. So I think that next step is going to be as we start to see these totals from his tour in combination, you know, with the streaming dollars and Marvel and, and all these other things that are going to come along with it, you know, he's going to start to climb up these earnings lists, you know, from a financial perspective as well. So I think that adds a whole other level of, you know, sort of like credibility in some cases when looking at somebody as like a generational superstar, when they sort of have the, you know, the financial success to prove it and to sustain and to, you know, to expand into other fascinating ways. So I'm really curious to see what he does next. Like, you know, what's his Jay-Z move? What's his puffy move? Is there going to be something in the spirits business or the cannabis or who knows what? But, you know, personally, as sort of a music business nerd, I'm especially interested to see, you know, what does he do with all this energy and momentum? And, you know, what direction does he take it in having created this incredible musical empire? Yeah, it's only a matter of time until he's going to top most of those lists, right? You look at the numbers that this tour will likely do, it's likely going to be over 200 million, if not more, just given the amount of shows that he has and the size of the arenas that he's performing in. And one of the things that I've always thought about with artists from other countries is that there's always been this stigma or thought that in order for them to monetize it always had to rely much more on brand deals or things like that because the assumption was that the fan bases in these areas may not be willing to necessarily pay as much but his tours are disproving that just based on the sales numbers i would need to dig in a little bit further to see okay are the dollar amounts in all of the regions similar but i think he's proving that that isn't necessarily the case and if he does want to continue to take this further what would it look like if he eventually let's say that he continues to do things with the wwe even further is he able to have some type of connection there to make that further extend right his this marvel character he's going to have in this upcoming movie is a wrestler what could that potentially look like if he ends up selling some type of as you mentioned some type of spirits or getting involved with something on the business side the sky really is the limit and i think it's one of those unique optionality things where it's up to him and what stuck out to me as well is when we think just think about his trajectory and what's possible now for a lot of latin artists is that he has not done one song in english 
everything that he's done is either been in Spanish or if he did it, then it's his verses still in Spanish, but everyone else is still doing their stuff in English, like the song with Cardi B from a couple of years ago. But I do think that that's different from even the wave of Latin artists that got mainstream popularity, let's say 20 years ago, you're Enrique Iglesias, you're Mark Antony's, or even J-Lo to some extent. They all had to do albums in English before they were ever given a consideration for that mainstream push or appeal. Ricky Martin was the same exact way. And I think the fact that he's been able to do it on his terms, he's been able to be an advocate as well for both gender norms and for just LGBTQ as well, and how he has been just a lot of the causes and things that he cares about. It's really cool to see an artist like this. And I think in some ways, the trajectory that Latin artists have been on, especially in the streaming era, kind of reminds me of where hip hop was at a certain point, right? It's like in the early days, they wanted those artists to like assimilate to whatever the pop phase was, right? Like the rappers had to do these pop collaborations. The Latin stars had to do the, you know, US pop star collaborations. Then once they prove they no longer have to assimilate in the same way, then those artists set the trends and now everyone else wants to come to them. And now we're seeing Billie Eilish and Drake and all these other artists doing songs in Spanish, even though that's not their main language. And they were just going to see more and more of that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that one of the things that Bad Bunny has proven, you know, and some others before him is that if given the opportunity, you know, if you're not sort of, you know, forced to go meet the quote unquote U.S. mainstream market where it's at, the U.S. mainstream market will actually come to you, you know, and people who don't understand Spanish will still love your music. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I know a lot of songs in English that I don't understand because for you, whatever genre, if it's, you know, rock and there's a lot of yelling or if it's, you know, rap and it's like so fast or with like a really deep accent, I don't always catch all of it. But, you know, people respond to music. I mean, it doesn't really matter what's being said. I mean, look at Nirvana, right? Like a lot of the lyrics didn't particularly mean anything, but people just responded to the music and the vibe and the whole thing. So even if you can't understand the words, people are going to be attracted to the music. And, you know, I think that he's showing that that holds true even on the tip top superstar level for sure. A hundred percent. Excited to see where his career goes. Excited to see Amen. where it continues to dominate. Amen to that. And, you know, if I'm his management too, I'm trying to get him in some consumer facing startups because if you're a startup and you're looking for celebrity investors, and I know that the market has cooled down a bit, but still, you know, you're in a fairly mature startup and you're trying to you know, get your name out there a little more by getting, you know, strategic investors, celebrities, etc. The kind of reach that he has, especially if you're trying to get into Spanish language market, just it's untoppable. And, you know, I just think there's a tremendous opportunity there and in a lot of other places for him too. So, Oh yeah, I'm sure his phone is pretty a lot. Him. If it isn't, yeah. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, it should be. It should be. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Before we wrap this up, we got to talk about this article that you had written very recently about we're both fellow Yankees fans and one of the stars we've been most familiar with over the years, Robinson Cano. And you have this idea that you had brought up that I thought was really interesting. love for you to talk more. Did Jay-Z ruin Robinson Cano's bag? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I kind of posed that question on my Substack, And, you know, I think going into it and that the background, I'll set the background for anybody who maybe isn't a Yankee fan, but I guess it was eight years ago, Robinson Cano, who at the time was the best player in the Yankees 
Everybody thought he was going to resign. He was a free agent. Everybody thought he would come back. The Yankees never lose out on a free agent. Jay-Z comes in, takes over his his agent from Scott Boris, who is like, you know, he is to baseball agency as Jay-Z is to hip hop. (laughs) You know, Jay-Z comes in, gets Kenota to come over to, to Rock Nation. Rock Nation brings on CAA to help them, you know, kind of become, you know, Scott Boris level players in the game, let's say. And, you know, Robinson Cano gets offered seven years, $161 million by the Yankees. And the months drag on. Nobody else is offering him more. Everybody thinks Jay-Z is getting greedy. And then just out of nowhere, Cano goes to the Mariners for $240 million over, uh, I think, 10 years. And great deal financially for him. Obviously, it's, you know, like $80 million when the Yankees were offering and no state income tax in Washington. However, a much worse team, a much worse ballpark for hitters. And, you know, five years into the 10-year deal, Cano, I mean, I think that was when he got suspended for steroids. Then he got traded to the Mets. And then he got suspended again last year, 80 games. And he, he started out this year with the Mets and just earlier this week got cut. And so here's this guy who, you know, so I guess that's my question. If he'd stayed with the Yankees, would all of all of these, you know, miseries have uh, befallen him? And should we blame Jay-Z for the misery? And I think my answer ultimately is is no. You know, the guy is going to retire almost $100 million richer eventually. From a baseball perspective, though, you can't argue that things would have been better for him if he'd stayed with the Yankees. And as it turns out, the guy who who really kind of led the charge, and I reported this in the latest edition of my Jay-Z book, Empire State of Mind, the guy who led the charge for Cano to leave was uh, Brody Van Wagen at CAA, who then became the GM of the Mets, traded for Cano, got fired by the new owner of the Mets, and is now back working with Jay-Z. And I think working on on representing Cano again as he tries to, to latch on with another major league team. So you could kind of blame him. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it really does come down to the player, you know, who makes the decision to take the bag, you know, instead of the glory, which is, you know, defensible. I think you got to live and you, you only have so long to be a professional ball player. And, you know, he's the one who took the performance enhancing drugs, got suspended. So, but it is this just sort of like fascinating winding road, you know, from this decision that happened eight years ago that's still playing out, that still had all these ramifications. And if you look back to that deal, I mean, you know, the fact that Jay-Z, whether it was Jay-Z or CAA or this guy Brody Van Wagen and doing most of the work, Jay-Z, you know, Rock Nation did get credit. And after that, you saw Rock Nation really become much more of a force as a professional sports agency. So, you know, certainly Jay-Z did well for himself in those past eight years. He's a billionaire now. Brody Van Wagenen has this great new job and Robinson Cano has that, you know, much nicer retirement eventually. So maybe he, he lost a chance at eternal glory, but, you know, $100 million is a lot of money. I don't, I don't know, Dan. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting because I've always thought that his career was definitely injury plagued. I felt like it was a typical timing of, OK, this guy's turning 30 and that could be hit or miss for a lot of baseball players, depending on how well they're able to take care of themselves and stay out of injury thing. The one thing, though, and this is a part that I do think gets overlooked sometimes, is the ballpark difference. Yankee Stadium, especially New Yankee Stadium, literally engineered in some ways to get more home runs and just have more, especially more than the old Yankee Stadium. Compared to T-Mobile Park in Seattle before it was Safeco Park, historically pitcher-friendly ballpark. So if 
you know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, outside of Griffey and A-Rod in the 90s, I can't necessarily think of people that really like, oh yeah, you know, they cleaned up there. Maybe, you know, you had some early, I'm trying to think of some of the other stars who may have like done well there from like a home run hitting perspective, but it's one of those things where you think about the trade-off, right? It's to some degree, it kind of makes me think about um, Carmelo Anthony with the Knicks, right? It's like you went to that team, you did get, you know, paid and you ended up getting, you know, later on a super max. But I think a lot of the decisions that he made showed that he was prioritizing more of the money that came through as opposed to the decisions. Why not wait until free agency to then right. join that team instead of making them yes. trade all those picks for you? Exactly. Right? And in some ways, yeah, I think about the Cano thing kind of similarly, right? If you wanted to continue to win and you didn't care as much about the money, then you would have stayed in New York. But to our point, yeah, you get it. $100 million is a lot, of course, but it's hard to have both, especially with a franchise, in my opinion, that they'll have spurts of having great players here and there, but they haven't necessarily been able to prove that winningness that Cano was raised in. Yeah, and Cano is going to finish up, and you know, even now it looks like he may ca- he's probably going to catch on with another team at least for the rest of the year. But he's, I think, at twenty six hundred, a little over twenty six hundred hits for his career. If he had been able to get to three thousand, which I think in New York with a better lineup that turned over more, he gets more at bats, more opportunities to hit. You know, there it's a better ballpark for hitters, so you know, more fly balls turn into home runs. It's pretty likely he would have gotten to 3,000 hits or that he'd be within shouting distance of it now with you know a little more time to go. There has never been a Major League Baseball player who got 3,000 hits who did not end up in the Hall of Fame once eligible, except for the steroid guys and Pete Rose, who you know was thrown out of the game for betting on baseball. So it is like an automatic ticket to the Hall of Fame. So if he had just stayed at Yankee Stadium, not done this, you know, not done steroids, I think he would have gotten there, no question. And, you know, who knows? I mean, seven years in to that deal, he would have been, what, 37 maybe? You, you never know. If he was still hitting well, they might have brought him back for another year or two. God knows they kept bringing Brett Gardner back, <laughs> you know? So I do think you would have gotten a few thousand hits and had a, a really good shot at the Hall of Fame. And is that worth $100 million, though? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. So, yeah. Uh, he did have such a sweet swing, though, man, watching him play Yankee Stadium. That was always fun. He did. It was exciting to watch. He had a great career. And yeah, I think that's a great note for us to close on with this. Zach, we covered a bunch in this pod, but thanks again. We'll have to have another roundup again at some point soon. But thanks for doing this. This was fun. For sure. Thanks as always. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.